this process that is kind of universal, impossible to avoid, certainly not man-made, you know, the turning of sugar into alcohol. It is it is the one of the simplest and most elegant designs in nature, just like photosynthesis, just like respiration, just like all of the ways that we can save this ship. And it is infinitely possible to have a completely unique version of that every single time. And that is why wine Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California, USA. Thanks for listening. As we head toward the winter solstice and the days grow shorter, I find myself introspective, or I guess more introspective than usual. What have I been doing with my time? And to paraphrase the poet, Mary Oliver, what is it that I plan to do with my one wild and precious life? Put these thoughts in the context of a global pandemic, ever more drastic experiences of climate change, and a broken political system, and I find myself teetering on this knife edge of hope and despair. Enter Mimi Castile. Mimi started her journey by going to the forest. She found that she could not save the forest from within, so she went to the farm. But she found she could not save the farm from within either, so she has recently taken the next step in her journey. And that was why I wanted to have this conversation with her, to ask her what that next step is and why she's taking it. But more than offering just the answers to these questions, Mimi offers us an urgent call to make big changes. She offers us hope in the resilience of the natural world, and she describes the vital need that we all have of getting and giving support to each other. We skip introductions in this interview, so if you don't know who Mimi Castile is, I urge you to search out her other interviews and talks. Mimi is my first repeat guest, so you can also find another great interview with her in the Organic Wine Podcast episode library. And I should mention that Mimi was recording from her new home, which is still being remodeled, and occasionally I couldn't edit around some of the construction noise in the background. It was so extreme as to be comical at times. Please forgive this authentic audio texture, as I like to call it. The context of this conversation is wine, of course, but wine has led us to ask some really big questions, questions about the sanity of our current economic model, questions about the sustainability of our global food system, questions about survival. Mimi's perspectives are at once radical and compassionate, revolutionary and life-affirming. You are in for a treat. Enjoy. Mimi, welcome. Welcome back. Thank you. It's really great to be back with you, Adam. Well, I'm honored to have you back again uh, on the Organic Wine Podcast for the second time. You're my first guest to be willing to subject themselves to my company for a second go-round. So well, I think that I'm speaks to your... <laughs> no, no, it definitely speaks to your generosity and kindness. So thank you for that. Um, but I, I have to say, you know, thank you also for saying yes over a year ago to a guy you didn't know it all who was starting a podcast. This has been a um, year of immense learning and growth of perspective for me, and you really helped make that happen. So thank you. 
Well, I, um, if I had anything to do with it, I am very um, gratified to hear that because I've really enjoyed listening to all of your interviews. It's, um, it's always a really um, thoughtful um, podcast, I think. So it's, it's really nice to be asked back. Well, my pleasure. Um, you've become, and you were, you know, when we last talked, but even more so, such a great spokesperson for the urgency of the need uh, to shift what I would call to a more ecological approach to agriculture. Um, and, I, you know, I wanted to start with this quote from Aldo Leopold um, from his A Sand County Almanac, since we actually brought that up when we last talked. But it's where he says, uh, one of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds and that the ecologist must be the doctor who sees the marks of death in a community that believes itself well and does not want to be told otherwise. Um, and I'm just wondering to what extent are you dismayed versus hopeful as you've tried to spread the word of the urgent need for change? It's this, I mean, it's interesting, especially in this, um, in this context, the context of the, um, just the imperiled natural system that we're a part of, uh, to me, it's the same state, you know, the state of, um, dismay and the state of hope it's, they're just two sides of the same coin because we, there's really nothing but opportunity, um, and, I mean, virtually nowhere to go, but, um, up, I mean, we could go very quickly <laughs> down the rest of the slope if, if we cared to, but, um, you know, every day I am faced with just the immense amount of opportunity that we're sitting on. And that's kind of where I try to keep myself as opposed to just sliding into the dismay, which is it, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I need to tell you um, that it's really challenging to um, keep yourself from feeling really, really just overwhelmed by some of the um, extremely bad news and just sort of, you know, visual reminders that we're all looking at pretty much every day now. So um, yeah, it's just a function of sort of, it, it's almost like a meditative um, reminder constantly to, remember how much opportunity that we have right now and that that's the work that I want to do. Um, it's the most, it's the most important work that we can do right now. Yeah. I mean, uh, really to, to try to give examples for hope was why I really wanted to start this podcast, not really knowing the path that I was embarking upon at that time. Um, and maybe this will lead into a bigger discussion of, of what you're doing in your life now, but hopefully you know, we're hopefully coming out the backside of a global pandemic. You know, the Northwest where you call home has experienced some of the largest fires and hottest temperatures in recorded history. Um, do you think wine is a big enough platform for the urgency of the need to make the kinds of changes that you've dedicated your life to now? Like, I mean, is wine big enough? Mm. It's a really good question. And I mean, you, you sort of know my situation over the last couple of years and the choices that I've made very recently to, um, you know, to scale down my wine project, especially the vineyard component of my life so that, um, 
so that the platform can be the focus and really just get, you know, instead of growing grapes for other people, which is what I was doing and, and very proud of what we built at the, um, at the site that we just recently moved away from, um, it, ha- it has to be faster now. We, ha- we have to do this in a, in a much more strategic and, um, I guess, organized way. The, the old thinking, uh, you know, and this is sort of what made me, um, what drove me um, at Hopewell was this idea. And I think it's the sort of the idea around organic and biodynamic and all of the certification programs is that, you know, through better practices and just sort of being an example, you can, you know, pull people in and that you could spread the, the better work that way. And, you know, I, that was a really important journey and, and, you know, critical work that I did in that time. But the, the real silver lining for me on the COVID cloud was realizing that I was in my own inertia And that the things that I know how to do and the things that felt like would be very uncomfortable to try to do um, were holding me back from this larger body of work that I think is is really um, (laughs) at the heart of the angst that I had been feeling for, you know, a decade, just that, you know, no matter how hard you work, um, being an island in a sea of lesser, um, I guess the, the wounds, you know, the Aldo Leopold wounds of the world. Um, it's not enough and we've gone too far in the other direction. And so that was, um, that was really a, a gift of all the pain and suffering of, of 2020 was just asking myself, you know, what, why are you doing this work exactly this way? I, I know I want to make wine and for me, wine is part of how I learn and it's part of how I keep um, a, a creative component to the work that I do. But um, growing grapes for other people had become not only um, emotionally uh, traumatic, but <laughs> um, financially financially traumatic as well. I mean, you guys, you in California have definitely had more than your fair share of this and um, the fire's in 2020 were just, it was such an awakening uh, to what is going to happen more often and and certainly won't be a, a one-time thing in the Willamette Valley. So anyway, all of this is just to say that um, that was a, that was really a, a gift of making me realize that if I mean, and this was why I left the forest as, as well. If I mean to try my very hardest for my children's future, then it has to be bigger than wine now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's sense that I got from the announcement that you made earlier in the summer. Um, you will, it sounds like have your own sort of, you'll be making wine for yourself essentially and growing your own sort of food for yourself, but not, not doing i mean i'm sure to sell as well but just your own project is what i mean uh exactly yeah so not not on the larger like 25 acres of grapes scale right and um 
it, it was also an opportunity to sort of examine how I feel about, um, you know, because we we looked at all the ways to do it, you know, plant um, planting grapes, buying, you know, buying land to plant or um, buying an existing vineyard that was much smaller. And both of those things were financially sort of out of reach. And I also just have, um, I guess, some philosophical objections to putting more vines in the ground at this stage of the game, because there's so many that are, you know, not receiving the attention they deserve and maybe shouldn't have been there in the first place. So philosophically, I just kind of have an objection to putting more vines into the ground um, unless they're replacing vines that have failed in place or something like that, because the, the, the conversion of land is such an epidemic now that we have to stop. And the stamp or the footprint of vineyards in the world is larger than it needs to be. So the Hopewell Wine Project um, will be leased acres that I'm going to, I've already moved my sheep there and very excited to graft um, graft some wood from my previous site onto this site this year and uh, carry on the carry on the project and the philosophy, but just for my own winemaking. And then the farm that we did end up buying is not, it's not a vineyard site, but it's going to be amazing for growing all the food and feeding my people and um, having other animals than we've had in the past. And it's, it's an exciting thing. And it's, I think also um, just living smaller and coming to terms with some of how I feel about land ownership as a concept. Uh, Mm. It's been a great, I mean, it's been a really just a great opportunity to look at all of those things and all of it in the context of all of the things that need to change about how we're doing things right now. (laughs) So um, it's exciting and it's terrifying. um, And that's seems to be the stuff that I like to do. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, there's so many things in what you said that that was my guess i i mean it sounds like you've been through a pretty big learning experience uh through the pandemic as well or just you know come to come to jesus moment with yourself anyway um i'm i'm thinking about something i've heard you say and it's essentially that it's like the way that we think about farming so just going back to like this idea of land ownership made me think about this, um, popped into my head, but it's like almost like we need to stop thinking about farming as a job or an entrepreneurial venture. Um, it's like a field of work that somebody would choose to study or be employed at for the purpose of making money. And that we need to start thinking about it as like a key element of the infrastructure of our society. Like it's, like it's not a business. It's, it's a publicly managed system that we all need to survive. And, I don't know. I don't know if that properly characterizes your thoughts, but I'm curious, you know, what kind of thoughts you have about that, and and you know, if if that's a reality in your head as well. I'm mean, not like a reality, but if that's a thought, what are what are the realities of making that happen? Yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's a huge question, but it, it's one that it is getting most of my attention right now, and and it it does kind of come back to this idea and. It's interesting because I can have a conversation with you and these 
things that I'm going to say won't sound so crazy, but obviously the the big challenge is that the current mindset is very much at odds with the direction of my thinking these days, which is exactly kind of as you say, um, foundationally, the idea that we should be making kind of endless growth profitability off of the extract of the land base is almost as absurd as anything else that humankind has ever conceived. (laughs) What land does promise is abundance for all life and that it is possible to sort of have an infinite abundance in a semi-closed finite system. But that requires the buy-in of all of that life that, you know, the you feed what feeds you. And there's nothing in that covenant about lining anyone's pockets with gold. So the profitability part and the and the way of reconciling agriculture as we practice it today with the the rules, the actual laws of the physical world and the physical universe, it, they they are not compatible. And our economy or, or what we call an economy um, that insists on that, um, you know, the, the margins, the profits, the endless growth is, is what we have to contend with now. And ba- boundarying and ownership of land, which is, um, which is the only means of survival that we have is what causes us in the first place to think of it as an exploitable resource. So I'm trying to get my head around the theories of change that might actually work before a collapse drives that change. And, um, you know, I'm certainly not the only person thinking about this. I think you think about it a lot, but it's really challenging to talk, you know, I mean, in any number of circles of, people that I consider peers and colleagues, very smart, worldly people who will just straight up look at me and say, are you actually like just trying to dismantle the global food system? Is that, I mean, is that kind of your end goal here is just to destroy the, um, you know, the, the free trade and, and all of these things that have made us you know, what we are now. And it's hard to meet that because it's obviously a very defensive question. But Mm -hmm. my answer is basically, I mean, yeah, yes, I am. (laughs) Because it is, it is absurd. It is absurd what we are trying to do um, within the laws of nature. So, yeah. yeah. You're reminding me of, uh, have you read The Overstory? The Richard Powers? (laughs) Isn't that? amazing but you remember the scene with the the julia butterfly character i can't remember what her name was in the book but you know they're in the tree and this guy comes from the outside and he's like a non-believer and thinks of them as these sort of starry-eyed hippie types yeah irrational yeah right and she's like do we live in a world of finite resources and he's like yes and she's like are we using those resources faster than we're replenishing them and he's like yes and she's like 
So A plus B, basically, what, what is the end of that, you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's what it reminds me of as well. I, it's, yeah. And, and we're, you know, we, we were talking and, and you just brought up that idea of like, we, we are hoping, I guess, everything that we're working toward is to try to steer this ship away from the iceberg before we hit the iceberg. Like before we, before collapse forces us to make changes, let's let our rationality and, and, and just wisdom force us to make changes. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, we, we were talking a little bit about panic and, and what that looks like. And, and can you, I mean, can you talk about how the pandemic has sort of influenced the way you've thought about this and, and brought some of that urgency to bear on your thinking? Yeah. I, and I mean, you had some great examples of that as well, but I mean, the, the thing about the pandemic is it, it's made me so much more just aware and able to pay attention. Cause I think we were all in the same, um, you know, just this momentum of the way we live now and, COVID forced us to, I mean, it, it put a full hard stop to kind of everything that we were doing and all of the ways that we were living, or at least many of the ways that we were living. And you see in people the, um, the capacity for what we're really capable of on the positive side, you know, the way that people will help one another and, Mm -hmm. you know, share their resources. And then you, in the same five minutes, you see just how dangerous, how critically dangerous panic is. Um, Even when, you know, (laughs) you were pointing out the, the grocery store phenomenon in the early days when things weren't really even sort of bad at all, and people were panicking and that's a very very dangerous place to be and so in my mind you know just because it's painful to see that happening as a you know just a dispassionate observer but you know when you think about what our children are going to live through not just a global pandemic, but what this, what, what we've done means for what they're going to live through and what they're going to see, that kind of panic really puts it very quickly into perspective how hard we need to work right now and that we're not necessarily working on the right things. <laughs> mm. So it's... um yeah, I mean, it's just really motivating. And it was a really great, um, I guess, crack in a door that had been just really shut for me. I, I mean, I just, you know, you think of something as your your life's work and it should be fluid. It should, um, it should evolve over time. But you know how sexy the wine world is and how you can get really comfortable doing what you're doing, especially once you get a, you know, get a little success and you're kind of managing to make it work. You know, it's, I hope to, I hope to one day. <laughs> well, yes, you do. <laughs> and you are, and you will. 
Um, but it's that it's that inertia that carries you along. And and you know, oftentimes we're getting less and less happy along the way without really noticing it because of course it's what we've always wanted, right? Is to do this thing that we thought we wanted to do. And then you're doing it and it's not fulfilling you and it doesn't feel right and it feels misplaced. And so that was just such a, I'm so grateful um, for everything that happened as horrible as a lot of it was. I'm so grateful for how it, you know, it allowed me to spend some time with my family that I hadn't had. I mean, we'd had plenty of time together, but not time together and just totally reprioritized everything. And it's, it's going to be another, just, um, it's like upsetting the apple cart. It's my, it seems to be my wheelhouse. So here we go again, some new, (laughs) new version of it all. Well, I mean, if we can do a, a little bit of a retrospective, just, you know, as like, a, I don't know, maybe like to, as a bookend for this time in your life, wh- what have you learned, uh, you know, over the last decade plus there at Hopewell and, and doing what you're doing? What what are the, you know, yeah, like what are the, what are the big takeaways that you would want to share that you think are things that everybody should know? Well, the biggest takeaway, the, there's two of them and they're, they they almost seem to contradict one another. But the biggest takeaway and the one that I want to put first in your view and the view of your audience is just that I was every day shown the ways that the world, that the natural world begins to repair even after repeated insult. And that with a little bit of encouragement, the things that the things that we have assumed are not possible are possible, not just possible, but possible in a much shorter period of time than any of us can appreciate. But then at the same time, a huge takeaway was just that, you know, you can do, you can embrace all of the regenerative philosophies, you can put in place all of the um, the principles and actions of putting the land first. And while, you know, with a value-added product like wine and a good enough business plan, that can work very, very well and can kind of turn a business from, you know, something extractive and you know, maybe barely profitable to something profitable and regenerative. But that resilience has got to extend beyond the borders of our own farms if we are going to stand a chance against the bigger ecological disasters that are. So like you can have the year to year sort of baseline resilience that comes with farming better. You know, you can have longer water holding capacity, a better ripening curve, all of the things that you would hope to achieve with better farming practices and more ecological infrastructure on your farm. But if your farm is, let's say, the same size that mine was, 80 acres, and you farm 20 of that, and the rest of it, you are actively, you know, trying to put back into habitat that's been lost, that will get you a lot 
but it won't save you from a hurricane, from a, a wildfire. It's not going to be able to stand through that without the support of the sort of landscape level change that needs to happen for us to have regional resilience in our food system. And so that's kind of a conundrum, right? So where do you, like, where do you apply yourself? And that's why, you know, I scaled this farming part and the winemaking part of what I'm doing down to just the smallest thing that can kind of keep the wheels turning to allow me to just as much collaboration and as much extending across agricultural production systems as possible to, you know, try to make sure that we don't miss this moment of opportunity. So your attention, it sounds like, is going to be focused on that that higher level, the landscape level uh, change making. Is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it has to be. And my yeah. fear right now is that, you know, with with more money on the table than has ever been even joked about in sort of the climate change um, investment, that we're going to make this all about carbon markets and yeah. just yeah. get it all wrong one more time. <laughs> yeah. And I just don't, I don't think we're going to have a lot more opportunities. And so even though I'm like nobody and nobody knows me or cares what I think, I have to try to figure out how to nudge this moment in the right direction. Yeah, that's what I, I, and I hope you do. (laughs) And whatever I can do to help, (laughs) please let me know. Um, And you know, I, I I think maybe the the question then for for you is what can we do, uh, the rest of us? You know, like what can we all do to be focusing on these larger scale needs and cha- uh, of change that you know if we're paying attention, it's hard to deny. Um, yeah, I mean. Well- it's a, I, and it's, I, I want to say you are, I, I just want to like, I want to give you a compliment and say you do a great job of validating all farmers everywhere. And, and I think it's important, regardless of what you're going to say, to just underline that you always, you know, something that you always underline, which is, you know, we like our conventional farmers are not the villain in this. Mm-hmm. Like we are, you know, farming's hard on so many levels and, they were offered tools that made it easier, that helped control the risk, that helped control, you know, the lack of consistency and this massive investment of effort and resources and time that could just go away in a poof. Um, and they were given tools to help with that. And in, unless we start meeting those same needs with better tools, like we can't just blame them for using the tools that are available to them. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and I, I don't know. I think, I don't know if that plays into any of the responses that you have to what we should all be doing but um i just yeah that i wanted to put that out there i i really that's very kind and i appreciate that you bring that up because i mean the nature of i think what was a big shift in my own thinking about this was thinking about you know coming out of the forest and back to my family's farm and then trying to, you know, like be, 
become a player in an industry that I had no, I mean, I had a family legacy in, but really, you know, everybody has to, um, I think, make themselves known in their own way. And, you know, this way of growing grapes or this way of um, doing agriculture that I was, um, you know, that I came out of the forest, just so convinced was the the way forward was not at all, there was no support for that. There was no support for um, that, even in a very progressive industry with a lot of organic and biodynamic players, there was no uh, belief in what I thought was possible except for one person in my life. And that's my mother. And I realized, so I've had this whole epiphany mm. around this idea that um, there was no reason to think that this would be financially successful, first of all. And that's one of the challenges that every farmer faces is that the idea that the bank is always going to run out of patience eventually with what you think is possible and what you want to try to achieve in putting the land first, right? At some point, you are beholden to that person who technically <laughs> owns your land. Um, right. And in spite of all of that, I have never turned back or questioned myself because I had the unconditional support of just one human being. And she couldn't bail me out. She couldn't, you know, make it all okay. But that wasn't the point. The point was the support. And what I observe now is that, you know, agriculture, like every human system and every human construct is a set of habits and behaviors that generally speaking, have a an immediate reward with a long-term massive penalty. And that's because we have evolved to respond to an immediate reward and not a long-term reward. And so we have to literally flip all of these habits over so that the immediate might be a penalty. You know, you may be unprofitable if you go and take a degraded piece of land and try to bring it back to health, you're not going to make a profit off of that endeavor without the support of the people who have all played a part in getting us there, right? And so if we want agriculture to change, and I think of all of the, all of the young people who are coming into their, you know, I hate the, I hate the term purchasing power, but <laughs> who are going to represent the eaters, the, the buyers or whatever we, whatever we want to call them, the consumers that more than from any other place I hear every day from people who are in that age category, who are just terrified and they have every reason to be terrified and almost no re no nobody offering any hope whatsoever and farmers are kind of in the same boat and if we really wanted things to change then this whole system of 
you know, you pay to get certified as a, um, as a farmer with a, with a quote unquote good philosophy and you get to put a halo around your head, but that's a class, it's a totally classist system and there's a lot of judgment and, you know, no vulnerability there. So I think the idea that that's how we're going to turn this around has just, I mean, I've just started to see it for as ridiculous as it actually is. And that right now the, the effort is going to be throwing an unconditional. So, and I mean that like at the very most visceral level, an unconditional amount of support behind the people who work the land. And it's amazing how powerful that actually is. I mean, if you look at the groups of, um, you know, conventional farmers who have formed groups like learning groups of, you know, and ways of supporting each other with better, um, you know, just by sharing challenges and solutions. And a lot of times creating those networks of support is the beginning of changing the, you know, sort of philosophies around, you know, our relationship with the land and just acknowledging, you know, I'm yet seriously, I've yet to meet a farmer, like an actual person on the ground, not a landowner, not a person who owns farmland, but a person who is touching the land every day, whose main goal is to destroy it. I mean, that's not, and that's not what's happening out there. And so, you know, I think that this really, um, this really is about changing how we see those people and throwing our unconditional support behind them and recognizing like we can't have a global food system anymore. It's really just not going to work anymore. So how are we going to identify the ways that a region with any remaining resources at all is going to be able to persist you know what what is that food chain what is that supply chain going to need to be when the next pandemic happens or when the next natural disaster separates those i mean really kind of tears down those transportation lines because it's really kind of what's happening right now and i think it's exciting to do that work and how beautiful not just how aesthetically pleasing, but how aesthetically healing it would be to build those regional food systems that have, you know, that can grow more food with less land and put more land back into just the thing that supports that abundance for all, you know, because we all need not just food, we need shelter, we need to see water. And if we want to bring water back to these systems that have been drained, that's an effort we can embark upon, but we have to take it seriously. And I think this technological approach to climate change is just really dangerous. I mean, we've definitely got to figure out emissions. And I I know that we're going to have to reckon with that, even if we don't want to. But I think that that's really happening and it's very positive. But on the flip of that, there's this disbelief that the land can actually be harnessed in a new way to accelerate 
us in a, in a more positive direction. I think the most people feel like the best we can hope for, and this is terrible. I think most people actually really look at their children and think the best we can hope for is for it to get worse less fast. Sheesh. And that is yeah. such an empty, horrible place to live. And nobody's going to do their best work in that space. And it's not even true, you know, and that's what I want. That's what I, especially those young people, I want to just convey this message. Like everybody has the capacity to participate in some way. If you can grow food anywhere, that will make a difference in how you feel you know, I mean, if you have access to a, a tiny little place where you can, you know, do some con container gardening, there's there's empowerment there. But then beyond that, it's really in the demanding of this political moment that we're in and not accepting anything less than what's going to get us the better future, not just the less worse future. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you... <laughs> do you know the do you know the <laughs> uh so many so many things um but have you do you know the book bright green lies i don't oh so this has made a really big impact on me as well and i think everything you're saying essentially resonates with that that we're essentially looking at climate change from a technological standpoint the solutions you know as technological and essentially this book is like look um if we're if we're building solar panels if we're putting in electric cars like these are all good things but the reality is there are massive infrastructures like f for all of the supply chains that go into building those things like there and the the energy that we're getting out of them you know anyway i won't break it down but you know it's it is that thing that it's like technological solutions really are not the answer like it is that's the bright green lie that we can just sort of techn techno our way to a, a better world and the reality is really we just have to reduce we have to use less we have to reduce our consumption uh, number one but then also look at these other systems that you're talking about like the agricultural system the landscape scale agricultural system um, so anyway, really good book. Uh, I wrote it down. I'm going to have to definitely. find it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, um, I try to limit these days my consumption of more of the bad news that I'm already aware of, but yeah, um, that's, that might be one of those. <laughs> no, I know, but it's, it's always, it's always beneficial. I think to have the, you know, just the fluency with, um, all of the, all of the horrible examples because they are useful sometimes. And I, I do think that um, especially when we're talking about choosing technological solutions over natural solutions, because we've convinced ourselves that with such a massive, um, with such a massive threat, you have to meet it with technology because there can't possibly be something designed by nature that is up to meeting that mm -hmm. challenge. Right. When in fact, it's the, I mean, the, it is the less absurd, just as you say, and there are so many examples mm -hmm. of that 
you know, being, you know, the work actually being done to show how putting more and more energy into the, the using of resources <laughs> to reduce. I mean, it, it's just, it's this really kind of absurd circular discussion yeah. and we have, I mean, I can't, I, I can't even remember what, what cat and I probably would get in trouble for actually calling out brands right now, but all of the things that are being made that have nowhere to go. There's no reason to believe that anyone needs these things. I, and I was, yeah. Oh I, I was at the grocery store today and scented pine, scented pine cones were right at the, as <laughs> I walked in and I was like, there it is. Like, I mean, exactly that. That was exactly what I was like. This is completely unnecessary. The whole supply chain that made this arrive here is just a waste of carbon. Like, this is absurd. Like, get rid of these things. This is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And the idea that it would not be better to shutter that whole factory and turn off the lights and close down the whole thing. One person, and that's the person who decided that it was a good idea to own that factory in the first place, actually suffers a little bit there. All right. of those people who slave away for no money to make this bunch of bullshit that we spend very little money on but fill our homes and our landfills with, yep. those people could be planting ecological infrastructure that will bring water back to our drought ridden systems. They could be growing actual food that just feeds themselves and their families. This is why, you know, it, the idea of a universal basic income, at least for farmers, is not only a really good idea, but a, a not at all absurd or non-democratic idea. Because if you think about where we have the largest opportunity, it's in all of these landscapes that are about to be completely inhospitable. We're not quite there yet. And if we were to turn our focus there and basically pay the debt, so use our huge silos full of cash that is otherwise going to be spent on something truly absurd. In 10 years, not only do we have places that are functioning and contributing to a food system, and I'm not even I'm not even necessarily talking about the human food system, but a food chain that is going to have to come back before we can produce food on that land again. That is the kind of investment that will actually change what our children feel and what our children have access to in the future. Fresh water that has been cleaned and not just treated in some, you know, disgusting treatment system because that's all there is left. We're not holding any water in our soils and it's not going into rivers and you know, th that's what a technological assumption buys you. Oof. Yeah, I love that. In terms of wine, I mean, we could go big and, and we already have surpassed wine, I think. I think both of us could look back and, and give credit to wine as the thing that might have helped awaken us in some way to 
a lot of what we see in our perspective now Mm -hmm. it was that it is that magical elixir that captures your attention in the Mm -hmm. glass and then leads you to the connectedness of all things um which is you know part of why it's still part of my life as well um because you know we we do have that connection and how how do you see it playing a role in your life and how for those of us who do love wine who are you know coming to this podcast as wine lovers what is what is the wine and what could the wine industry do yeah well the um the thing i always observe and and just muse over is how really our biggest limitation is our imagination right now and you know the the mindset that we are stuck in is really a failure a failure of our imagination and of our creativity um and that kind of gets back to this you know thing that i was saying about agriculture being a set of habits and and how habits are very difficult to break um because of the way the feedback loop works but the thing about wine is that it's where it's it is where creativity lives in its best in its best iteration wine is where human and nature come together in this incredible explosion of creativity and art and belief that this process that is kind of universal, impossible to avoid, certainly not man-made, you know, the turning of sugar into alcohol. It is, it is the, one of the simplest and most elegant designs in nature, just like photosynthesis, just like respiration, just like all of the ways that we can save this ship. And it is infinitely possible to have a completely unique version of that every single time. Mm -hmm. And that is why wine, um, and I'll just put a period there because why wine? (laughs) Yeah, that is why wine. Mm -hmm. Um, You, you know, and I, I wanted to bring this up earlier, but talking about it's, it is easy and you do want to limit yourself on the sort of bad news, like the, the new, whatever it is that gives you a more confirmation of, of what you already sort of know is not a pretty picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side of that, we have somebody like David Montgomery, whose book uh, growing a revolution is really, you know, echoing what you're saying. You're echoing what he's saying, which is the ability of the earth to regenerate, quickly so much more quickly than we even imagined uh is really cause for hope i mean do you are you you're familiar with david's very yeah yeah we we hung out Um, on a few panels together yeah so i figured you're in the same neck of the woods sort of um i mean compared to me uh you and and you you're i mean you're a trained scientist ecologist forester and You've done some, you know, for example, some really important work on, you know, understanding, explaining glyphosate, which I definitely recommend anybody look up online. Um, and, I, you know, I'm just wondering, 
I mean, like, for example, so I, I, having seen that video that you did that's now on YouTube about glyphosate and then just doing more and more research after that, like when I walk into a grocery store, I find myself in the grocery store a lot. So a lot of my examples are from walking into grocery (laughs) stores. Um, And I'm working as a chef too. So it's like, I I see this in, in the things that get purchased for food, you know, as, as food, as quoting what I put quotes around as food. And, you know, I'll walk into a grocery store, store aisle and, and like an entire, like if I'm in the cereal aisle, all I see is just a, an entire row that literally every product is just saturated with glyphosate. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it's corn, wheat, soy products that have been grown as genetically modified things and bro- with broadcast, but the broadcast glyphosate and it's, you know, it's kind of changed the way that I've thought about food. Is, do we still need to get the word out about glyphosate? Like, is it still a big deal? I mean, I think that, um, you know, anybody who's paying attention sees that they're, you know, finally, whether it's Bayer or Monsanto or, or who, you know, whoever else is now manufacturing um, the molecule itself, the writing is kind of on the wall, I think, it, about that particular one. The thing that... Yeah we don't realize is just how many agricultural chemicals are in use now and how, you know, the most of genetic engineering, um, at least historically has been directed towards being able to spray those things directly on the food crop itself. Um, and that the plant will kind of live through it, uh, and, and nothing else will. And that's, um, it's something that, again, at the consumer level, trying to navigate that and trying to incorporate that into, you know, I I always think of the people who are using snap points or who are on food stamps or are basically, you know, they budget their $20 a week to feed their family of four and they're they will have to buy that food unless we change everything and it's like the responsibility of uh, i'm not a religious person but when i stand outside of religion and want to because i i think it it does so many great things but um or or could you know the the communities and belief systems and especially that sort of, you know, the idea of there being a golden rule, I don't see that reflected in this system that we've built at all. And the, the reason it looks the way that it looks is because farmers were told that they had to feed the world. Hmm. And what we have to do is like rewind everything that we believe uh, is true about feeding the world and just take a good hard look region by region at what can be done to feed everyone equitably and healthily so that we can do anything else. And it really does kind of solve for almost all of our problems because Almost all of our problems worldwide at their root have to do with this idea of limited resources 
that are being exported on purpose to other places. (laughs) And where that's just, you know, when you make a linear system out of a natural system that is supposed to be circular, there's only one way that that goes. It ends. There is an ending to that line. (laughs) And that's, I mean, it's, it's so simple, right? But that, um, you were asking about glyphosate and here I am on linear systems, but yeah, I guess my answer to that question is it, I think glyphosate is a very handy lens for viewing the entirety of what's wrong with our food system and just being educated about it of yeah. course, is, is really big, but it can feel cripplingly paralyzing because you don't know what to do with that information because of, you know, where our agency is currently with our food system. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean the U S I mean, that's what I discovered, you know, going down that rabbit hole was just how in, in following the glyphosate rabbit hole, I just started, you know, doing research and finding out how bad the U S was like on a global scale with just about everything. I mean, we're worse than Brazil and China in our regulation of certain chemicals. Like it's, there's, there's a really, we, our food system, you know, I, I hear people say like, we're the safest food system in the world. And I'm like, well, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, that all depends on, I guess, how you evaluate safe. Uh, but in terms of what we're putting out into the land, it's, it's really, really one of the worst. I, I mean, it's significantly worse in Europe. And then, you know, we, we we're definitely allowing things that aren't allowed in places like China and Brazil, which, you know, I don't think Americans like to be compared to those countries, nothing against them personally, you know, no offense to Brazil or China. No. Um, Yeah. Your point is very well taken. I think that, you know, Americans assume that because we have things like the FDA um, and the EPA and, um, you know, all of the sort of consumer protection, there's an assumption that that is, that really has anything to do with our safety uh, when in fact it, it, uh, clearly not the fact. I mean, we don't even we don't even test for glyphosate in in our food system regularly right. because it's not part of that main panel of um, minimum residual allowances of all of the chemicals oh, that wow. are used. It's too it's a different test. It's too cumbersome to test for regularly, and the mr you know the mrls for glyphosate are are significantly high um and yet we when you do go out and test the food uh very regularly tests beyond and outside of those minimum allowances but yeah i I, that's what i was going to say i I think when people have done independent studies i've heard these sometimes massive numbers depending on the food obviously um where you know where it came from and but those commodity crops that make up, you know, 60% or more of the American diet are, are the worst. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's nuts. So are you onto other scientific studies? Are you onto other scientific exploits and research of your own at this time? Yes. Uh, always, always doing yeah. research. <laughs> and for me, the, you know, the real, um, the real expanding shoreline right now is in the, just the study of 
the regional differences and what we can do with repairing degraded lands, like in, in arid ecosystems, especially, this is a major passion of mine where, you know, we're growing food at the expense of, you know, very, very limited resources, especially in places like California and the entire Colorado river basin. And what is a regional food system going to look like in those places if we were to do it right? And what are the crops that we can grow and feed people with and not at a penalty, not like everybody's going to be miserable, but with, with certain expectations being changed what are the crop rotations that would feed people well would grow soil the fastest would allow for more water to return to the surface where it can become part of kind of replumbing that sort of biological system that is supposed to drive water further inland so how do we start rebuilding the the biotic pump of the landscape, in other words, um, with crop rotations, um, including livestock as a crop rotation. So what would it look like if every farmer didn't have to figure out how to incorporate a livestock component into their farm when that really is, it's a challenge, you know, it's something that maybe you just don't have the bandwidth for because you're struggling to make your payment you have another job. So what if the flock was owned independently, created another enterprise for someone else, and that other person was rotating between these other crop rotations, bringing health back to a, or bringing the animal component and the nutrient cycling back to a larger footprint of land without it having to be the, um, you know, we talk about in regenerative circles about stacking enterprises and having a triple bottom line. And I love it. I really do love it. But the way that actually works best is on a regional scale, not a farm scale, because then you can actually look at if I don't want to have to at some point feed these animals and bring nutrients in from another place how could this work if my animals weren't my animals? What if our fence lines were suggestions <laughs> as opposed to hard rules? And so that's my, that so, is, so, that's my place. Yeah. That sounds like you've been uh, ruminating about the Scottish Highlands a little bit. Oh, is quite a bit. Wanna... Yeah. <laughs> and all of the places where I think the animals that are there were, part of, I mean, the, the, the genetics that developed were part of, you know, living in a very specific place with specific challenges, as opposed to how do we make it bigger? How do we make it fatter, faster? How do we make it some kind of grotesque version of itself, but with like careful breeding and selection, how do we get an animal that is part of a resilient system? And that, you know, there are any number of stories of those things, the Icelandic sheep, the Highland cows, the, and, you know, there's no, there's literally no reason that this kind of, um, this kind of rearranging of the agricultural landscape couldn't work. It seems like there would be a lot of things to overcome. <laughs> no kidding. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, 
I mean, you and I would probably be willing, like if we had adjacent properties, we'd be like, yeah, come on, like tear down the fence. Let's do this, you know, um, getting total strangers to do that who have different political views and different, you know, farming perspectives. That's the challenge, right? That's where, you know, mm-hmm. the strangers. Uh, yeah. Um, Yes. Any thoughts about that? I do have lots of thoughts about that. And it and we, we don't of, have to get into that, but No, it's okay. I mean, I'll I'll just touch on it because I'm sure you're exhausted and frustrated by my <laughs> utter lack <laughs> of respect for podcasting audio. Um, Not at all. The so this kind of comes back to that support structure that I was talking about. And that's what I think is step number one is starting to create regional support structures for farmers. And you kind of start by just getting them interested and, um, and kind of coming together. So, you know, I'm, I'm very eager to start developing networks of different types of agricultural producers, but in, in a regional context, who want to start some level of monitoring, um, you know, kind of at the soil level first and, you know, talk about how practices relate to those things and, and get start developing a real data set that people can just without any judgment and with a lot of vulnerability, look at themselves in the context of that and say, okay, what, where's the really low hanging fruit? Because if we can just start, with the really low hanging fruit that makes a, I mean, the little tiny window dressing of putting in a hedgerow and, um, you know, the, the bird boxes and, and herb wheels and shit like that. I mean, I'm, I really feel like there's going to be time for that, but first we have to make space for people to come and be safe and really get a sense of who their neighbors are and what might be po- and then you know once those conversations are underway and i know this sounds like a really cumbersome and long process but what i've observed is that once that community structure has been established it's addictive people want to share their experiences they want to learn from their neighbors they want to see what's working for them and why it's not working on their place and I want to facilitate that and accelerate it. I want to make it possible for people to, and I don't want it to be expensive. You know what I mean? I want it to not, I want it to be free. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I acknowledge that it's very, it's huge. It's challenging. People are more convinced than they've ever been that, you know, someone's their enemy or whatever it is. No, I think that's, that is the, the first step. I mean, what I've realized is, I mean, with friends and neighbors and in places where I've come, you know, I, I've, I've come from where I'm from, we might have very different political beliefs, um, at this point in history that are very divisive, you know, we're intentionally, we're, we're meant to be divided and I'm doing everything I can to just not even, you know, like build a relationship that where we don't even bring it up. I I know that's sort of like an old school idea of like, don't discuss politics and religion, but it's not that it's not that I don't, I'm not willing to discuss those. It's that if we start there, well, that's the end. And we, we need to build a relationship before we can ever not talk about these much more, uh, 
divisive ideas without defensiveness, without the trust that's necessary to talk about them, to know that we're not coming from an attack or, you know, defense position. Like we need to know that there is just a baseline. We care for each other um, as a human. And yeah. we want to we want to share good times with each other. Maybe wine, <laughs> bring it back to wine, can help with that. You know, it generally does not. <laughs> and also, you know, I mean, when you're both standing on a piece of land that you both connect to and have a right. deep love for, I mean, there's we already have so much in common that that other stuff really it's irrelevant first of all, in the, in the context of the work on the land and that, that vitriol and that sort of faceless hatred or faceless fear is, I mean, that's the product of our, our very, very overtaxed nervous systems. And if I've learned anything, um, and actually I might even put this uh, ahead of the other main points, that I learned at Hopewell is that the the best and most healing way to calm that biological stress reaction to an environment that is turning against you is to do the work. Mm. And it's even better when you can share the work with someone else. And so I completely agree with you. I think there's no reason to talk about that stuff right now um, when we've got land in front of us and a lot, a lot, a lot of headspace. So there's so much we can do. Yeah. Um, Just some quick questions for you. Just some, we'll bring it back. We'll lighten up a little bit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So I I did a recent post on on centraliswine.com. I sort of grandiosely titled this blog post, The Organic Wine Lover's Revolutionary Reading List. And so I'm trying to just compile some really great books that are sort of thought thought books, not like the Wine Atlas or the Wine Bible or things like that, but things that will change your perspective on land, on place, on the world, the history of, of farming. Um, do you have any suggestions? Any good books? I do. Um, I mean, the, all the classics are on there. Uh, I mean, I don't know what all the classics are, but of course there's... One Straw Revolution, you know, Silent Spring, Unsettling of America, A Sand County Almanac, um, but then you know, and then quite a few others. But what what do you what do you got? Yeah, no, I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go off campus a little bit. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a wild card in here. Um, but for me, it was pivotal. Um, I read it. I've read it so many times now, and um, it's "Small Is Beautiful" by Schumacher. It's actually an economics book, um, and it was written in the '70s. So, I cannot. I I truly cannot recommend that book highly enough because it it really does drive home just how long this has all been obvious. <laughs> wow. And when even an economist is um, pointing out the flaw in, you know, just the the framework, the the um, the mental framework that we approach our, you know, our societies with, um, it's super powerful. And I I would definitely like all of the books that you listed off 
I, I figured you already had on that list, but I figured this one might be a, a wild card. Yeah, no, small is beautiful. That sounds right up my alley and I can't wait. I am so excited to read that. And especially for an economics book, I think is really important for the book list about wine. Um, you also, I mean, you brought up this unconditional support that is necessary. And I mean, I, I think it's important to say that you are a, an extremely generous promoter and supporter of other people who are doing great work, agriculturally, viticulturally, and otherwise. Um, you know, I, I've learned about some really great people through you. And, and I'm wondering if you wanted to give a shout out to anybody that you think we should know about who need support. Um, I don't know, maybe it's putting you on the spot to do that. But if there's you know anybody you want to give a shout out to. Do you want, um, are we thinking, mm-hmm, yep, that's the girl, mm-hmm, yep, are we thinking, are we thinking? oh my god, uh, wine people, I'm, or? I'm glad, it's, I'm glad it's not that you had like beans for breakfast or something. <laughs> um, well, I would, I mean, I love any opportunity to talk about the great work of other folks, and um, you and I were sort of talking about, um a friend, a couple friends of mine uh, called Branchwater Farm in New York. They're a, a distillery. They've been working on their farm for a long time and they've just started launching their um, their spirits line. Kevin Pike um, and his wife, Robin, um, are just two of the best people in the world. And I'm so excited that they're finally, you know, getting something out that people, because you know, you work so hard to make something happen and you have this really long-term goal and then it's out in the light. And I just would love for people to check them out. And, um, you know, there's so many, there's so many wine people that I love and respect. And I think, um, you know, I've mentioned a lot of them, but I, I also would really love to sort of shamelessly plug the work of my friend, Corey Carmen. She's a cattle rancher. She has a producer group that, you know, does holistic management yeah. and holistic planned grazing. And um, I, I might've even brought her up the last time we spoke because she's the Wallawa obsession. Um, no, I, I think you, you, she figured prominently in your intro to your, on your recent presentation, um, I forget at the, the conference that you were at. Oh, the acres. About- yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's one of those um, it's one of those gateway drugs that I like to put out there um, when people ask me this very question because you know there's this really strong divide just like in every realm of our um, our discourse these days about meat and whether or not it's terrible or cows are the enemy and um, I am a obviously a a very strong believer that animals are a part of how we are going to heal the land. And it's not about, um, you know, feedlots and the sort of terrible way that we raise animals. It's, it's not the only way and it's not the only example of how we are going to create healthy agricultural systems. And there's this terrible situation with how we label food um, and it, you know, having grass fed and grass finished cow products out there is 
such a gift. I mean, it's such a gift to the land, but it's really a struggle for the people who are doing the work because they're sort of being lumped in with people who are grass fed, but not necessarily finishing on grass. And um, this is not to throw anybody under the bus, but the idea is seek out those things that are the examples of what you want to see in the future and more people will be able to do it. So yeah. yeah. And I feel that way about your wine too. Oh, thanks. Well, what was what was the what was the farm and Carmen Ranch? Your, Carmen Ranch. Okay. Okay. Final question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice would you have for somebody who either just purchased, inherited, or otherwise, you know, acquired a piece of raw land? We, you know, especially you know, if it's if it's already got a diverse array of terrain and flora and things like that. Not necessarily. I mean. Obviously, I think the, the the answer to that question is a little more obvious if 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 you've just inherited a degraded piece of farmland that was you know chemicals were dumped on for fifty years, like you know get to the work of regenerating it. But let's say you you know it's not that situation. Do you do you advise anybody to even plant something? No, <laughs> um, yeah, that's a great question. So I think. Um, First and foremost, I would say if you if it if it has intact representative remnant habitat, go out first and get to know get to know that so well. Get to know who's there, what you know, what animals move through there, what it everything that it's providing, and really sit with that first. And if if it's tempting to do any planting whatsoever, um, I would say being patient in that early learning period and really giving yourself the time to understand the nature of that place. And that if it, if it is one of those examples, it is the highest standard that you should hold any activity that you do on that land too. So it's not to say you can't plant something or grow food on that particular place because you absolutely can, but understanding how it works first and who's there and what what's already being provided for is the most critical education to being able to take care of that place in perpetuity. So that would be my first and most critical message. And then after that, I would say, start with the, start with the smallest piece of that that you can, because you'll, you'll be surprised at how much you can feed yourself with a very, very, and, and that will be another very valuable right. lesson on just how we could do so much more with less. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can, we, just on our little, we have a 6,400 square foot lot, which also has a house on it and a garage here in Los Angeles. And we've continually scaled back our vegetable garden because it overproduces to the point that we're down to one sort of long, narrow box and like an herb box. And then, you know, we have fruit trees and everything else, but the abundance that you can get out of, you know, a thousand square feet is insane. Like for two people, it's, you know, it's, you know, if you do it right, you can just eat year round and yes. and share 
and share and you know? share yes and have and have dinner parties for friends to like that are mostly from your backyard it's it's really amazing um yeah i i i think that's really great mimi thank you i i just think uh you're an incredible and very nece necessary voice for change um the changes we need to make so uh, you know if we want to have a healthy future for the world and I'm, I'm happy to do whatever i can to amplify your call to action so to speak so thank you sincerely for doing this work and joining me once again for this conversation well thank you um really i can't thank you enough for your very gracious patience with my ridiculous situation over here uh with the noise and everything and i really apologize for that but i also just want to thank you for um kind of being a reminder that we are we are like we are so connected um we've never met in person um but we're so connected through time and space. And, and that is where, you know, all the hope lies is that we, we know that the will is there and you give me hope that the mindset of the people out there is such that, you know, we really, we have so much more opportunity right now than we than we recognize. And I, I'm so appreciative of your curiosity and the conversations that you're um, facilitating and making space for, because I know that <laughs> I know, I know what you do and I've had your beautiful wines and I know how challenging it is to be as small as you are and exactly where you are in the world. And it's, it, it's making a difference. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh,